Dear friends of Jesus Christ, the first thing that popped into my head as I was reading this passage uh, was the nursery rhyme, King of the Castle. Do you know it? It goes like this. I'm the king of the castle and you're a dirty rascal. It works better if you can sing it in a real uh, British accent. Um, it's not a very nice nursery rhyme for children to chant, uh, but let's face it, there aren't really that many nice-sounding nursery rhymes. I also remembered playing the game King of the Castle as a kid. Usually in, it involved a hill or a snowbank or um, a high point on a playground. And the goal of the game would be to make it to the top of that high point and then to knock off anyone else who happened to be up there. And then if you were lucky or strong enough to be the undisputed king of the hill, you could sing in a sneering voice, I'm the king of the castle and you're a dirty rascal. It was especially effective if you had pushed someone down a snowbank and they had like snow on their face and you could really just give it to them, right? The things kids do. Seems like this game and nursery rhyme has a long history. A history that goes at least as far back as uh, the showdown that took place on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and Baal. Who is king of the castle in Israel? Who really controls the heavens and brings the rain? This passage answers that question in a dramatic way. But the more I thought about this passage, the more it occurred to me that the main question this text asked us to ponder this morning is not who is king of the castle, but rather it's a more personal question. Who do you say is king of the castle? Who's, who's in charge? Who's the king here? When the people had all gathered at Mount Carmel, Elijah went before them and he confronted them with a version of this question. He asked them, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The word translated waver here is difficult to translate. Other translations go with hobble or limp. How long will you hobble or limp between two positions? But I think the NET's translation gets the gist of it. How long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? Make your choice, Elijah says, confronting the people who had gathered on Mount Carmel. Make your choice. You can't walk on the fence forever. If you say that Baal is God, then forsake the Lord and follow him. But if you say that the Lord is God, then forsake Baal and return to the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac. And Jacob. But in response to Elijah, the people say nothing. It's quite a different response from the one the people gave to Moses at the base of Mount Sinai a couple hundred years ago. Quite a different response from the one they gave to Joshua at Shechem just a few generations ago. On both occasions, when the people are confronted with this question, who are you going to serve? They they respond wholeheartedly, we will serve the Lord. But here there is silence. I wonder, how should we understand this silence? 
Perhaps the people are feeling a little exposed by Elijah's question, and like a class being scolded by their teacher, they are shuffling their feet and trying not to make eye contact. Or maybe they're silent because they don't feel the need to choose between the two. Most of the surrounding nations had more than one God, after all. What's what's the big problem with uh, hedging your bets with a little heavenly diversification? Throughout the series, I've been making the claim that this was a time of great apostasy in the northern kingdom of Israel. With Ahab and Jezebel at the helm, I've been saying that that Israel had slammed the door in the Lord's face. And this is certainly true in some respects. I mean, Jezebel, she is dead set against the Lord and his prophets. But for the common folk, the people on the ground, things are a little more fluid. It's plausible that they simply found a way to incorporate Baal worship into their religious worldview. The people of Sidon worshipped Baal, and it seemed to be working out good for them. Their economy was booming. Maybe it couldn't hurt to give a Baal a try, they thought. Maybe the Lord wouldn't mind sharing the burdens of being God. Or maybe the people are silent because they're no longer sure which God is the real God. I mean, look at the priests of Baal in this passage. They're serious believers. They really believe that if they pray, that Baal is going to show up with fire. And they weren't the only ones to believe strongly in their God. The Moabites believed that their gods were king of the castle too. The Egyptians thought the same as their gods. Maybe Israel's silence is due to the fact that they're confused. And they don't know who is God anymore. And we can look down our noses at Israel and say, you should know better, but try to put yourself in their shoes. Maybe you can relate even a little. Don't you ever ask yourself these big questions like, does the Lord really want our undivided heart? What's what's the big deal? That seems a little controlling. And who are we anyway to claim that our God is the only true God. I mean, the Muslims have their God, and the Hindus have theirs, and and they are just as convicted about their beliefs as we are of ours. Who are we to say that our God is king of the castle, and their gods are the dirty rascals? The scientists say that we don't even need God to make sense of life in this world or to live good lives. They tell us to dispense with this idea of faith and this idea of a God existing somewhere out there. In the marketplace of gods and ideas, it can be hard not to get paralyzed with indecision. And yet, it's still important that we wrestle our way through Elijah's incisive question. For while life in this world is complex, the core testimony of the Lord's self-revelation is clear, and that is that God reveals himself to be a God who will not share the castle with other gods. The first two commands in the Ten Commandments drive this home so loud and clear. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Here's the exclusivity. You shall have no other gods before me. And furthermore, it goes on like this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 
For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, wanting that exclusive relationship. And this exclusivity was confirmed in the Shema, the Jewish testimony of faith that faithful Jews would recite every day. Hear, O Israel, they would say, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, or also you could translate it as the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That love isn't to be dispersed over many gods, but directed towards the Lord alone. Yahweh isn't interested in sharing top spot with other gods. He demands total allegiance. Why? Well, one reason is found in this passage, and that is that the other gods are nothing. All throughout the priests of Baal, calling out to Baal, there's a phrase that's repeated a few times. No one answered. No one heard. These other gods are nothing. Certainly not worthy of worship. Other parts in the scriptures, the, the idols of the other nations are, are, um, are made fun of when, you know, in the Psalms we hear, they, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They're human creations, not the creator. And so the Lord, as he looks on this situation, he sees the truth of the matter, and that, and that is that Baal is a bad bet. He's a bad person to be in relationship with. He doesn't make covenants. He doesn't make the rain. In fact, he's simply a creation of humanity's religious imagination. And the same is true of other gods. They can't hold the weight we ascribe to them. I mean, the stock market won't answer your prayers. It's indifferent. Your family, your spouse, they cannot save you. It's only, it's only human to trust in people, places, or things. In fact, you have to if you are to live. But the things of earth, they will let you down, and they will not be powerful enough to sustain you through the grave. We go through this life clinging to things, hoping that they will offer us salvation, hoping that they will give us the good life. But everything we put our faith in that is not the Lord God ultimately lets us down because there is no other God but the Lord. And the second reason that Yahweh won't share top spot is because the Lord is a jealous God. I've always had trouble with that description. The Lord is a jealous God. But I've come to see that his jealousy is a fruit of his passionate personal love. I mean, think about this between uh, the love that exists between a husband and a wife. A man who really loves his wife, for instance, and is passionate about the relationship will not be willing to consider having an open relationship. And if the wife suggests it, it would be a sign of the man's great love for his wife if he got justifiably angry in the situation and said, hey, we made promises to one another. You are mine and I am yours. I'm not willing to share you with others. Modern people might consider God's jealousy, his, his possessiveness to be a little smothering, but it's not. In fact, it's freeing. It's freeing to know yourself as the beloved of God, to know that you are the object of his passionate personal love and that he wants to be in relationship with you. And 
not to smother you, but to see you thrive as a fully human, human being, to have your heart fully alive in relationship with him. That's who you were meant to be in relationship with. You're created for that relationship. And God is jealous for that. What we see on Mount Carmel is a jealous God hallowing his name for the sake of his people, that his people would turn from their idols, those things that will lead them to nothing but problems, and return to him that they might thrive in his presence. And the way that this is revealed, the way that God hallows his name is through a competition. Elijah sets it up. Let's get two bulls, says Elijah. The prophets of Baal can select one and I'll take the other. Then we'll cut them up, place them on our respective altars, but no one shall strike a match and light the fire. Instead, you call on the name of Baal and I'll call on the name of the Lord and the God who responds with fire. He is God. This pleases the people. They're happy with this arrangement. So the priests of Baal go first and they cut up their bowl. They put it on their altar and then they pray. Morning to noon they pray. Baal, answer us, they shout. But there is no response and no one answers. Midway through the day, Elijah begins to have a little fun with this situation. Shout louder, he says. Maybe your God is deep in thought or maybe he's on vacation or, or away on business. So the priests of Baal, they up their performance. They, they pray louder and with more bravado. The, the work, they work themselves up into this spiritual hizzy and begin to cut themselves with swords and spears. But still, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Finally, about at the, evening, at the time of the evening sacrifice, it was Elijah's turn. He began by calling the people close to himself. Then he rebuilt the altar. He found 12 stones and he set them up as an altar. 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Not 10 stones, you might notice, because this is the time when the kingdom had divided and the 10 tribes to the north. This is where Elijah's ministering. And then there are the two tribes to the south. So Elijah doesn't use 10 stones. He uses 12 to represent the whole people of God and the covenant that the Lord made with Jacob and Jacob's descendants. Then Elijah dug a trench around the altar. After that, he arranged the wood and he cut up the bull and he placed the bull on the altar. Then he had the people douse the whole thing with water. Three times he had them pour four buckets of water over the altar Water cascaded down until even the trench was filled and overflowing. And then Elijah stepped forward and prayed this prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. The first thing to note about Elijah's prayer is that it's so unlike the prayers offered by the priests of Baal. The priests of Baal are, are noisy, frantic, and at the end of their prayer session, they're a, a bloody spiritual mess. But Elijah doesn't need to crank up the volume or perform theatrics 
to get God's attention. Instead, he simply prays with confidence, trusting that the God who gave him his office as prophet will hear and act in accordance with his word. The second thing I noticed about Elijah's prayer is that it's a prayer for the people. He wants God to reveal himself, to make himself known, to to hallow his own name for the people's sake, that they might not walk in darkness anymore, but that they would know that the Lord is indeed God. And it's it's such an important prayer to pray, I think. I mean, it's the prayer of an evangelist. Hallow your name, Lord. Let people know who you are. Reveal yourself. These people are confused. They're off giving themselves to other lovers who will not satisfy their heart. Reveal yourself. Show yourself that these people might turn from darkness and come into your light. Argument and discussion can only take people so far in their relationship with God But at the end of the day, true transformation only occurs in people if the Lord reveals his majestic love and authority. The veil needs to be lifted. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of um, the testimony of Blaise Pascal. Um, Blaise Pascal was a uh, mathematician who lived in the 17th century, uh, a French mathematician, and... um, he had an experience of God just so powerfully in a church service late at night in a Catholic church in France. And um, he wrote out his experience. And then when he got home, he cut it out and he sewed that testimony to the inside of his coat, his favorite coat. So whenever he put it on or off, he would see the testimony. And it was just so powerful what he wrote. And like, I don't have it written down right now, but it began with the words fire. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Joy, 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 feelings of peace, my God and your God, the God of Jesus Christ. Joy, joy. And he sewed that to the inside of his coat because the Lord had hallowed his name in Pascal's life that night. And the Lord heard Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel and responded with fire. And the fire was so powerful that it burned up the bull, the wood, the stones, and it even consumed all the moisture in the trenches. A word about this revelation. I mean, on the one hand, this fire from heaven, it just reveals the the absolute power of God to to break in and show, show his power. But on the other hand, it's also a sign of of God's presence. And he's not just the covenant God, not just the God who throws fire down from heaven, but the God who comes near and who answers prayer. This is a response. Baal doesn't hear. No one answers. Elijah prays in faith, and God shows up in fire. And when the people saw what the Lord had done, they fell to the ground and they cried and they gave their allegiance back to the Lord. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
Their faith is a response to what they have witnessed. They believe not because they lack evidence and they're just saying, well, I'm just going to believe in this. No, they have this dramatic experience of God and they respond with faith. They trust God again. All this happens, says the text, about the time of the evening oblation or the evening sacrifice. So what that means is back in Jerusalem, there's a sacrifice being made on the altar in the temple at the same time that Elijah is praying on Carmel and asking for God to light the sacrifice there. These morning and evening sacrifices were offered in the temple by the priests for the sake of the people. These sacrifices were designed to mediate the Lord's presence with his people that they could dwell together and and be in covenant relation together and not be burned by the God who is a consuming fire. So these sacrifices, they, in a way, they functioned as substitutes. They were signs of God's mercy and covenant love amongst his people. And I find it interesting that all this happened at the time the evening sacrifice was being offered, that the fire fell on the substitute Israel, the altar with 12 stones representing the people of God. The fire fell on the altar and not on the disobedient people who are wavering between two positions. It fell on the bull and the people were spared and also transformed by the experience. I really wrestled trying to figure this out, um, but in the end, I'll just end up quoting someone who figured it out much better than I could. Uh, theologian Peter Lightheart helped me to connect the dots to see the connection between what happens on Carmel and what happens on Calvary. Here, here's what he said. Carmel anticipates another mountain, a mountain outside Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment falls on a substitute Israel when Jesus, the altar of God, is crucified to save his people. At Carmel in the third year, Yahweh sends rain that renews the land. And in Jerusalem on the third day, he raises Jesus from the dead to renew the world. At Carmel, the judgment of God is followed by rain. And in Jerusalem, the one who is baptized with fire on the cross ascends to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit, pouring out the Spirit like showers from heaven. And what is this, how does the Spirit show up in the story of Pentecost? Like tongues of fire. Tongues of fire, right? The God who shows up with fire, he is God. And he does all this to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time, to show the nations that he is the Lord and that there is no other. There's so much more we could explore in this story, and I'll probably end up unpacking it more a little bit next week too. Today, I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that the real king of the castle is not only the God who comes with fire, but the God who is willing to take fire for the restoration of his people. The true king is the one who becomes a rascal so that we could reign with him forever. This is the ultimate revelation of God's power and covenant love, the mercy of the cross. And it was given to those 
who are paralyzed by indecision, the disciples, stuck in confusion, people like me and you, given to us to show us the depth of God's jealous, passionate, personal love for us and the world. Who do you say is king of the castle? What other power, God, idea, or person is like the Lord our God and Jesus his son? Your trust is not wasted on him. He is worthy. Amen.